uh, this change has happened, I kind of think we should like, get all the musicians to have like, handbells for when he comes back. <laughs> Tell him, you know, while you were gone, we made a couple changes around here, Matt. It's a s- summer of handbells at Trinity Church. Um, well, good morning. Uh, today we're going to continue our study of uh, Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. For those who are new to Trinity, I'll tell you that we'll soon read a passage of Scripture together, and there are some Bibles down the middle row. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to grab one of those. Um, if you don't own a Bible, that's our gift to you. Um, I'll also mention that there is a worship guide on, or, or an outline on the back of your worship guide. Um, warning, it's not to scale. Uh, so this section that says introduction should be like more like that big, um, and and I'll explain why here in a little bit. So if you're if you're taking notes, prepare to use tiny font um, on the on the worship guide. So before we read the passage from the Gospel of Matthew, um, which is where we're going to be today, I want to preview it a little bit. After some exciting weeks learning about Christ's views of anger and marriage uh, and divorce, we are finally getting to the really juicy stuff. Oath-taking. That's right, today, today it's going down. We are talking about oaths and vows, maybe even pledges, promises, insinuations. That's what we're talking about today. Uh, so hold on to your hats. It's going to be really salacious. Um, I'm guessing that oaths are not your, your typical topic of study and of conversation, so I'm going to give a longer-than-normal introduction, um, because I think the historical context is important here. I'll try to let you know when I'm moving on to another point in the outline so that you can keep along. Um, Now, for the past few weeks, we've heard Christ take something that was a commonly held belief or rule and shatter our expectations about whether simply following that rule is good enough to be called righteous in the eyes of God. If you're a Christian, you should be actively engaged in the process by which God purifies your life to conformity with his plan. Right? We might call this sanctification. If you're sitting here today and you don't consider yourself a Christian, you might be wondering how to live a life that brings lasting peace and joy. Right? In either case, Christian or not, we try to order our lives in ways that allow us to go to sleep at night with a clear conscience. And whether talking about the anger that we keep inside, or lust, or even divorce and remarriage, for centuries there have been rules that even God-fearing people try to adhere to. But sometimes we use these rules to extend the boundaries of our behavior. As Matt Given said in a sermon a few weeks ago, rather than holding ourselves to a high standard, sometimes we look for the loopholes. And if you want to talk about looking for loopholes, there is no better place to look than in how we manipulate language. That's what we're really going to be talking about today. And if you want to talk about manipulating language, there's no better person to talk to than a lawyer. Now, I know there are several lawyers uh, and, and even law students here today, and they will tell you that the entire legal process is filled with so-called oaths and pledges. Right? You pledge not to receive or uh, give help on exams. You promise to disclose anything bad you ever did uh, while in law school. You do the same thing when you're going to take the bar exam in a given state. 
But the biggest vow that I made was actually after I graduated from law school. Right? It's when I got married. Um, you know, you promise to do any number of things. You've heard them if you've been at weddings. Um, I'll let you know that I am killing it uh, right now. Um, but, you know, you promise to do all these things right, when you get married. And after I got married, there was something that really quickly I learned about Stephanie. I learned that she loved, loved legal dramas on television. Right? Now, for a lawyer, that's really maddening. Um, right? But she used to watch Law & Order every night. You know, as I'm trying to go to sleep, she's watching Law & Order. So I was forced to go you know, to another room and go watch like, UFC fighting or something. It's a tough life. Um, but you know, watching these things is maddening. I mean, the trials on these shows, they get resolved in you know, 12 minutes or less, as the lawyers in the room can tell you. That is not how this really goes. There's always some gotcha moment where a witness is caught in a, in a verbal trap by some crafty attorney. You know, like that, that is just not how it goes down. But I'll admit uh, that one of the reasons, I think, that I, I went to law school and got, or got into the legal profession was by watching this show. I'm going to date myself here, but watching the show called Allie McBeal. It was a law firm full of really witty people, and they ended every show with a musical number set to a Motown song. It's like, this is sweet. Like, that looks way better than all the shows about the medical profession, which I'm sure were also totally accurate. <laughs> um, anyway, but the shows all follow a similar pattern. You know, in a 30-minute show, you spend the first 15 minutes gathering the facts, right, and the last 15 minutes sort of at the trial. The most popular one right now is The Good Wife. Uh, and if you've ever watched it, you spend most of the show wondering, you know, who's telling the truth? And then there's a moment when they go to court and someone has to testify. But before they sit down uh, in, the, in the box, what do they do? They stand there with a the court officer. They put their hand on a Bible. Right? And they swear to tell the truth the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help them God. As if some lifelong pathological liar is going to get into court and have an epiphany in that moment that causes them to suddenly see the light and change their ways just because of this weird formal process, this weird formal promise that they're forced to make. Okay? And that brings us to our passage today. And hopefully now you're thinking, yeah, what is the deal with these oaths anyhow? Right. So I'm going to talk about that, and better still, I'm going to talk about how our words and our promises are not trivial. In fact, our words reveal what's inside our hearts. And for those of us that follow Jesus, the truthfulness of our words show the world who he is. Now, uh, please stand with me in honor of God's word while I read from Matthew chapter 5. These are Christ's words. Again, you have heard it said, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. 
Let what you say simply be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Thanks. You can be seated. Okay, so what are oaths? So there's, this, there's the witness in court. Right? She's about to give the testimony that we've waited all trial for. She's smartly dressed, friendly, but not frivolous. She tries to look sincere, but not too serious. You, know, you want to relate. This is, there's an art, a certain art form. And before she can tell her story, she has to do this strange thing with the Bible. Forget about whether or not she actually believes the words that are in the book. But this formality gives the whole experience an air of believability, doesn't it? But, but where did it originate? So most legal historians actually trace this practice back to criminal courts uh, in, the, in the 17th century in London. So back then, judges had a lot more discretion when sentencing a convicted criminal. But what they didn't have was a way to maintain records. Right? They, couldn't, they didn't have a, a good way to maintain records of prior punishments that a person had received. There's also this concept that judges could grant someone significant leniency but a defendant only got that type of leniency once. So there's no widespread records, there's no you know, social security numbers or ID cards that allowed a court in one part of the city to know about a ruling in another part of the city or another part of the country. So this is where the practice originated. For a criminal defendant who committed, say, a theft, right, the court might order that the person was actually branded, okay, branded on the thumb. So a theft, and you were branded on the thumb with the letter T, okay? a murder, an M, etc. So that if that person goes into court again, it would be immediately apparent, right? And they're just standing there. It would be immediately apparent that you are hearing from someone with a past worth knowing about. That's how the practice of swearing on the Bible originated. Uh, but the oath, the actual words that are spoken, those solemn words, you know, I'd swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, blah, blah, blah. Right? You might have heard it phrased differently. You might have heard something like, I promise that as God is my witness, that such and such happened. Right? That would be another example of an oath. Here's one definition of an oath that I, that I found uh, I thought was great. An oath is an appeal made to God in public, calling upon him to witness a statement made in connection with an event or fact. It's an appeal made to God. And so the thinking went like this. If you're making an appeal to God, it must be about something pretty serious. It must be about something that's pretty important. So sitting in court where your life and your liberty may hang in the balance seems pretty serious. It seems like an appropriate use of an oath. But in typical fashion, long before Christ's sermon, people had twisted the original intent of such serious promises. Now, before I get to how oaths and promises got twisted, I want to look at some biblical examples of the appropriate use of swearing or making an oath. And now, stick with me. We're still in that introduction. So here's some, here's some examples of appropriate use of swearing or making an oath. So I just told you about this courtroom practice that stems from the 17th century. But I want to get really historical. 
right? I want to talk about Moses. Uh, Moses is, is, and the time of Moses is when these oaths first popped up. So Moses is in the desert. He's with the people of Israel, God's people. But lots of problems arise. The people of Israel wanted a set of rules by which they could live righteously. Uh, A a sort of little bitty lesson here is be careful what you ask for. You want rules, people of Israel? You get rules. And if you're having trouble sleeping at night, crack open the book of Numbers and you can read rule after rule after rule. That's what the whole book is. Here's a passage from the book of Numbers, chapter 30. Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes of the people of Israel, saying, This is what the Lord has commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord, or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Okay, so here we clearly see that God commanded, in fact, a system that involved the use of oaths and vows. In fact, he's telling his people the right way to do it. The oath was to be used to protect against the fact that many times what people said was unreliable. And and I think we'd say that that's a a reasonable thing. It's a reasonable thing to want to protect against unreliability. Unreliability is a nice kind of lawyer way of saying liars. Now, let me show you another instance of an oath being used appropriately. This time it's from the book of Hebrews, but it's actually uh, referring to something that happened um, that predates Moses. It's referring to when God interacts with Abraham. Here's what it says. This is Hebrews chapter 6. For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Now get this. For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes an oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So, did you you see what God did there? He made a promise to Abraham, and he swore by himself. But the passage goes on to give more explanation for the purpose of an oath. People swear by something greater than themselves, so that the oath is the final confirmation. Of course, nothing is greater than God. So when he swears on his own name, it's to benefit our unbelief. But when we call on God as a witness, we're essentially asking him to vouch for us and to make good on our promises if we fail. It's like he's the guarantor, if you will, of our promises. An oath, a vow, a promise, whatever you want to call it, it was meant to be sincere. In a few minutes we're going to see that it doesn't matter if you use God's name at all. Promises that were made were meant to be kept. So I just gave two examples of oaths that, um, that I think you know, Christ would have been okay with. In the first example, God actually gives the commands about oaths. And in the second example, God himself made the promise. 
So now fast forward years later to when Jesus is preaching. The religious leaders at the time, they were called the Pharisees, they were completely misusing these oaths. So, so here's an example of, of how it was going. So let's say we're negotiating about something. Let's say I'm going um, to help you fix your car. Uh, it's biblical time, so um, I'm going to help you fix your ox cart. Uh, so f- the, f- the first thing is you should ask someone else because I don't know anything about ox carts. Um, but let's say I do. Stick with me. You ask if I'll come on Tuesday to help you out. I say yes. You don't seem convinced. I say, I swear to Jerusalem, I'll be there on Tuesday. Guess what? Come Tuesday, I'm there. I show up. Great. Ox cart fixed. Now, let's ask the same question of one of the Pharisees. He says, I swear by Jerusalem, I'll be there on Tuesday. And he no-shows. What was the difference? I don't, know, I don't know if you caught it. The difference was that I swore to Jerusalem, and he swore by Jerusalem. The Pharisees had constructed this whole complicated code that was meant to sound like you were doing the right thing, but was intentionally dishonest. Right? They sounded really pious, but they never intended to honor their word. So this, finally, brings me to the end of the introduction. That Jesus is not concerned with the structure and the phrasing of our oaths and promises. Jesus cares about getting to the underlying issue of truthfulness. He knows that our promises and our words reveal our heart. So that's where we're going to go next in the outline. That our promises reveal our heart. So in the past few weeks, our sermons touched on anger and lust. With anger, Jesus said that we aren't only responsible for murder, we're responsible for the anger in our hearts. He said we aren't just responsible for adultery, we're accountable for the lust within. And the concept is the same here. Christ is concerned with our hearts and what our words reveal about them. So I'm going to list a few examples. See if any of these resonate. Exaggerations. We use our words and our language to exaggerate. Two words that I think are so overused today are awesome and epic. Steph Curry is an awesome basketball player. Prince was an awesome guitar player. You see somebody on the street, how are you doing? Awesome. Okay. Friends, when the God of the universe created the earth from nothing, he looks around and he says, it's good. <laughs> Meanwhile, you take ten pictures of yourself having lunch and truffle fries and let the whole world know that it's epic? What does that reveal about us? Right? It's It's sort of in jest, but what does it reveal about us? Either it means that we don't take language seriously, or we're so concerned with our image that we do all we can to sound worthy of envy. How many of those pictures do you see on Instagram of just feet looking out over the ocean? 
Right? I mean, I think oceans are so tired of seeing everyone's feet at this point. But we exaggerate. Here's a, another example. We use complicated language to, to try to control situations. We try, as the Pharisees were clearly doing, to control situations by manipulating our language and manipulating people with our language. We use this puffed up, complicated language to signal that we have control and influence. I do this. When I really want someone to listen to me, I say, you know, you look serious. Let me give you my honest opinion. As opposed to what? The lies that I would otherwise spout? But what does Christ say? Let's go back to verse 34. He says, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Don't even swear by the hair on your head. I have lots of hairs on my head. Why not? Because we don't control any of it. We don't control any of those things, heaven or earth or the color of our hair. By using deceptive language, we reveal that we want to be in control. We want to be in control of things that are way beyond us. At the very least, we're wrong. But it could be an indicator of pride and where we put our trust. I'll give you one more. Sort of half-truths and telling half-truths. Another way we use language to try to manipulate situations is by telling half-truths. One way I saw this uh, was a time when I was walking with a brother who would reveal some sin struggles it was really good to bring those struggles to the light. But I was concerned. I was concerned that he hadn't revealed everything. And I told him, I said, don't make me ask the right questions. In effect, that's what Christ is saying about half-truths. He's saying, don't just answer the question. Tell me the truth. Our words matter because they reveal our hearts. In the context of the past few weeks, when we've learned about uh, anger and lust in our hearts. Think about the words you'd use to describe yourself. If you were confronted by a brother or sister in Christ, would you use overly complicated words and half-truths to describe the situation? Oh, no, no, it's not, it's not like you think. It's a little bit like this. It's a little bit like that. Or would you be able to speak a simple truth? Right? The words matter because they reveal our hearts. Now, Christ gives us an example of simple truth-telling, and so we'll, we'll move there in the outline. The first part of the good news that I hope to share and leave you with um, by the end of this sermon is that Christ gives us an example of what I, I've called in the outline simple truth-telling. As I just talked about, that we know from our own experience that we often use complicated, even cagey, you know, dodgy language to manipulate situations or hide what's inside. I, I saw one of my uh, sort of heroes kind of fall to this behavior. Now, you don't have to be a cyclist to have followed the Lance Armstrong saga. Right? Here's a guy born with incredible athletic ability. He was an Olympic-caliber athlete uh, by the time he was 16. Uh, At an age when his friends, most of his friends were going to college, he was already a pro cyclist. And cycling is a punishing sport. 
It's a sport in which you spend hours training your body and your mind really to fight the natural instincts of pain avoidance. I mean, that is the essence of these bike races. And despite how expensive uh, carbon fiber bikes and these fancy aerodynamic helmets are, cycling has traditionally been a sport for people uh, from families with little means. It was kind of, in Europe, it was sort of a, a sport for poor kids. Because if you had more than two nickels to rub together, you would find something else to do than get on a bike for a week and race up and down the Swiss Alps. Right? You'd find something else to do, I assure you. It's also a sport that has been dogged by allegations of improper use of performance-enhancing drugs. Usually it's called doping. So the allegations are partly because these men and women are doing things on bikes that, for most of us, are just unimaginable. But the allegations also persist because there have been so many instances of cyclists being found to have used illegal drugs to boost their performance. Now, I've read books and articles by many of these guys, and they all have ways of justifying why they started doping, or why they kept doing it. But no one, no one, was more outspoken in denying doping than Lance Armstrong. Right? Now, keep in mind where we are in the sermon. We're trying to understand how to simply tell the truth. Now, I don't mind telling you that I'm the fastest cyclist that I know on the 1900 block of Eastside Avenue. Uh, and if you asked me if I was doping, I could simply say, no, I'm not doping. Uh, I did have a ham and cheese croissant this morning, so that might explain my performance uh, on the bike. But here's what Lance Armstrong said through the years. Lance, are you using performance-enhancing drugs? These are direct quotes. I have been on my deathbed, and I'm not stupid. I can emphatically say I am not on drugs. So you don't use drugs. The simple truth is that we outwork everyone. But when you perform at a higher level in a race, you get questions about doping. Okay, so you've never taken drugs. I have never had a single positive doping test. And I do not take performance-enhancing drugs. And then he goes on. Now he, I mean, he's getting revved up now. As long as I live, I will deny it. There was absolutely no way I forced people, encouraged people, told people, helped people, facilitated. Absolutely not. 100%. Not even speaking in sentences anymore. He's just angry. You can see how angry he is. 20-plus uh, career, 500 drug controls worldwide, in and out of competition, never failed the test. I rest my case. I've never doped. I have competed as an endurance athlete for 25 years with no spike in performance. Passed more than 500 drug tests and never failed one. Friends, those are not simple answers, right? That's not a simple yes or no, a simple truth. Those answers are evasive and they are manipulative. And by sounding indignant over the questions, we were supposed to side with Lance Armstrong. I did. Why are they going after this guy who just wants to ride his bike really fast and raise money for cancer research? And then six months after that last quote, he saddles up next to Oprah, and he says, All the fault, all the blame here falls on me. I viewed this as one big lie that I repeated a lot of times. 
I made my decisions. They are my mistakes. And I'm sitting here today to acknowledge that and to say I'm sorry for that. Lance did all but swear on the name of the Lord and all the saints in heaven right, when he was denying. And the deeper and darker that his lie got, the more complex the language became until finally the weight was too much to bear and the federal government was closing in on him. Now, I don't think anyone here uh, today has an issue with performance-enhancing drugs. But I bet there's someone who's used evasive and manipulative language. I bet there's someone who's made promises that were a little bit dodgy or that they didn't mean. What about when you get that dreaded call from your parents about your holiday travel plans? Hi, honey. You coming home for Thanksgiving? Do you say, no, I only get one day off and I don't want to drive across two time zones for dry turkey? Or do you use your words to evade? Maybe. Uh, I'm not sure yet. Possibly. Thinking about it. Now those might be true answers. They might be true answers, but what's in your heart at those moments? Are you being evasive in your answers? Are you being evasive and answering the question, or are you telling the simple truth? That's what we're called to. So just before Jesus was sentenced to death by crucifixion, he had an opportunity to model simple truth-telling for us. After he was captured by the local authorities, Jesus was in front of the high priest. Now, the express purpose of the hearing was to see if there was any testimony that could be used to convict him to death. The high priest says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Basically, the high priest is actually trying to compel Jesus to speak by invoking uh, the living God, right? He is trying to subject him to an oath. Now, Jesus, remember, this passage that we've been reading, he says, do not swear an oath at all. Jesus could have refused or even refused to be subject to an oath. But as we saw earlier, it's not the oaths that he's against. It's the deception. Jesus then says, it is as you say. Yep, I'm the Christ. I am that dude. Now, note that he didn't simply answer with the one word, yes. But he gave the true and uncomplicated answer. He plainly speaks his truth. He rests on his word. He doesn't lean on complicated or flowery language in which he invokes a higher power. Right? He's telling the truth, so what's the need for additional language? Let me, let me personalize this for you. What would it say about God if people can't take the words of his followers at face value? If they, if they need something else to bolster what we say, what does that say about the God that we serve? Complicated language is another way of hiding what's really in our hearts. It comes from a desire to be self-made and to control how people see us. By Christ's own example, 
We ought to speak plainly. Right? Speak a simple truth. Okay, so in the time left this morning, I want to talk a little bit and give a few points of application. How do we put this part of the Sermon on the Mount into practice? Also, not in your worship guide, but application points somewhere in there. I'm going to leave you with three applications this morning. Now, one, one quick aside, um, which I don't really have the time to get into this morning, but I, I do think it's worth mentioning um, that the listeners at the time, right, the listeners to Jesus' sermon at the time, uh, had not been empowered with the Holy Spirit. This is a timing thing. Um, what that means is that Jesus meant for his original listeners to act on his words right then. This wasn't a, hey, and by the way, in the future, you'll have the power to tell a simple truth. He meant, you can do this now. Right? Now, this side of the cross, we're even more empowered to do so. Here are the three applications. First, because we are bound to Jesus, we need to be bound to our words. We shouldn't behave like the Pharisees, pretending that only certain special words lock in our promises or our oaths. I'm telling you that what God desires is the simple, uncompromised truth. The format of the promise or the oath doesn't matter. To Jerusalem, by Jerusalem, it doesn't matter. Say what you mean and what you know is true. If you are in court and you need to make an oath, make it. But make it knowing that you don't need it. Right? Oaths only exist because lies were abundant. We don't need the oath because we don't need the lie. It's a second application. For those of us who are followers of Christ, by our truthfulness we show that we are bound to him. For those of us that are followers with Christ, by our truthfulness, we show that we are bound to him. We serve a living God, and every conversation we have is in his presence. Furthermore, our speech has implications on how others will come to view Christ. I want to I give that a minute to sink in that our speech has implications for how others will come to view Christ. That stray comment, that broken promise, that white lie, that could determine what someone else thinks about Jesus Christ, our Savior. If you are a follower of Christ, you should take that really seriously. Now to be sure, something that you say is not going to change God's nature. But by your words, you can exalt or tarnish God's reputation in the world. Just think back to the examples I gave today. Exaggerating your status and kind of puffing up your image. Being dishonest or deceptive. Telling half-truths. Using complicated language to evade uh, and evade accountability. And then, These are things that we have all done 
And for those things, we deserve more than a mark on the hand. We deserve separation from a God who is nothing short of perfect. That is not an exaggeration. But there is good news, and it's the third application this morning. Three, by appreciating the power of the cross, we can walk in light and speak the truth without fear. Let me say that again. By appreciating the power of the cross, we can walk in light and speak the truth without fear. Search your heart. Are there things you fight to keep hidden? Christ calls us to bring everything into the light. We don't have to fear the truth or the fact of our sin when our identity is in Christ. We put on his identity and no amount of self-promotion could make you comparable to Christ. That list that I just mentioned, exaggerations and deceit, uh, evasion and telling falsehood, Jesus died for those sins. He didn't die for sins kind of like those. He died for those sins, for your sins, for my sins. He took them on himself and he carried them to the cross. And if you have accepted that fact, you can put on his righteousness and claim it as your own. You can claim Christ's righteousness as your own in the eyes of God. You don't have to fear being truthful because nothing could be discovered that hasn't already been nailed to the cross. Do you promise to tell the whole truth? Yes, because what could you say that God doesn't know? If you are a follower of Christ, and I'll close with this, your verdict is in. You are redeemed. Right? Yes, I promise to tell the truth. Yes, I promise to tell the whole truth. Yes, I promise to tell nothing but the truth. And so we pray, help us God. Please pray with me. Lord, we know that our words reveal our hearts. So we don't ask for better words. We pray for a clean heart. Create in us clean hearts, O God. Renew a right spirit within us. Expose the instances where our language tarnishes your reputation in the eyes of the world. Purge those words from our system. Keep us from exaggerating and posturing and puffing up. We know that you see all and no one can hide from your presence. May we act as if you are always watching, not to condemn us, but as one spurring us on to righteousness. Lord, help us follow through with our promises and our commitments because when we do, we glorify you. And finally, may our words honor you, and by our truthfulness, may our bonds with you strengthen. We pray all this in Christ's name.